Welcome to episode one of the Annick Castle podcast. I'm your guide, Daniel Watkins, and in today's episode, you'll hear a brief history of Annick Castle, a thousand years of history summed up, hopefully, in a single podcast. I'll be joined by Jenny, Hello. who will be providing quotes, facts, and figures as we go along. So let's get started, and we hope you enjoy. Let's start at the beginning. The earliest definite record of Annick Castle is a written description in a chronicle from the year 1138, which described it as a... Munitissimum castellum, which means a heavily fortified castle. Thank you, Jenny. We can take this quote to mean that there was probably a completed castle at Annick by this time, although exactly how it looked, we're not sure. Despite centuries of repairs, restorations and improvements, there are still some parts of the castle today that we can identify as being from the 1100s. If you've ever visited Annick Castle and gone into the staterooms, you'll have walked underneath a stone archway that goes all the way back to this period, the very start of Annick Castle as we know it 900 years later. There may, however, have been a fortress of some kind on the same spot as the castle, even earlier than 1138, dating back to before the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest of England in 1066. Today, the castle is a little bit over 30 miles south of England's border with Scotland, and there was fighting between those two countries throughout the medieval period. Scottish attacks in and around Annick took place regularly from the very beginning of the castle's story, and it quickly became known as a border fortress. In 1093, King Malcolm III of Scotland, who'd reigned for 35 years and inspired the character of Malcolm in William Shakespeare's play Macbeth, was killed in fighting very close to Annick Castle. Eighty years later, another Scottish king, William the Lion, was captured and taken prisoner just outside the castle. The area around Annick Castle actually contains monuments to both these Scottish kings. To the west is a plaque marking the occasion of William the Lion's capture, and to the north, on the other side of the River Alne, which protected the castle's northern edge, is Malcolm's Cross although the current version of this monument wasn't put up until the 1700s, a very long time after Malcolm himself was around. But that's a story for a future episode of the podcast. The owners of the castle in the 1100s were the de Vesci family, originally from Normandy in France. By the end of the 1200s, their legitimate family line had died out, and there were no direct heirs to take over Annick. The castle and the land around it, known as the Barony, were placed in trust with Anthony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, who sold it to another family in 1309. That family were also originally from Normandy and were known as the Percys. Later, they became the Earls and Countesses and then Dukes and Duchesses of Northumberland, and they still own and live in Annick Castle today. You'll hear all about their history in the next episode of the podcast. During the 1300s, 
The Lords Percy built new towers all around the castle's keep, its central building, and along the perimeter or curtain walls. Some of these towers are still standing more than 700 years later. Two of the most impressive are the pair of octagonal towers that guarded the entrance into the keep. They're decorated at the top with a series of stone shields, and they were built in the middle part of the 14th century. If you visit the castle today, these towers are probably one of the first things you notice ahead of you as you enter the castle grounds, and they're still pretty awe-inspiring today. At this point in history, Annick Castle was being used as a border fortress. It was a military garrison. Just in case there were more Scottish attacks, or, alternatively, if the kings of England wanted to send troops to attack Scotland. Evidence from 1314 tells us that stationed at Annick there were... Three knights, 38 fully armed soldiers, at least 40 light-armed cavalry troopers, called hoblars, and an unknown number of men-at-arms. Thanks, Jenny. In the following century, the Wars of the Roses saw the houses of York and Lancaster battle for the English throne. When Edward IV became king after the Battle of Towton in 1461, Annick Castle became a target for both sides. The third Earl of Northumberland had been killed in that battle, and his heir had been imprisoned in London, which left the castle basically up for grabs. It was besieged multiple times, and it changed hands multiple times over the next few years, being held by both sides of the war, and eventually ending up back with the Percy family after the fourth Earl was released from prison. It appears that nobody was ever able to completely conquer Annick Castle just by force. When the Wars of the Roses ended in the 1480s, England's new king was Henry VII, and the Tudor dynasty began. Society began to change quite dramatically, in terms of religion, warfare, and royal court life, among many other things. One of the changes that most affected Annick was that the golden age of the medieval castle was generally considered to be over. The effects of cannon fire on stone walls had become more and more dangerous, most castles no longer needed resident knights and soldiers, and many noble families began to find castles themselves unsuitable to live in. The Percys did still use Annick Castle during the Tudor period, though, and while by this time its role as a fortress for defending that English-Scottish border had arguably become less essential, small-scale attacks still took place on both sides. A Scottish raid in 1577 is supposed to have cleared the castle dungeon and its cellars of all of the prisoners being held there. The castle of Annick is a very ancient, large, beautiful and portly castle situate on the south side of the River Alne upon a little mot. Thank you, Jenny. That was the beginning of a survey of Annick Castle, written in 1567 by George Clarkson, who worked for the 7th Earl of Northumberland, or at least he did before the Earl was beheaded on the orders of Queen Elizabeth I. Clarkson's survey is one of the most valuable sources we have for how the castle looked 450 years ago. He described every building in detail, including some that no longer exist. And Jenny's got an example... 
Betwixt the constable's tower and postern tower stands one fair brew house, well covered with slate, and joining upon the said postern tower stands the bakehouse south and north. So those towers Jenny mentioned, the constable's tower and the postern tower, are still there, part of the castle today. But the brew house, which would have produced drinks, and the bakehouse, which would have made the castle's bread, are sadly long gone. Though you can still see some evidence of them on the castle walls. One of my favourite parts of Clarkson's survey is his mention of windows. And here is what he says. Because through extreme winds the glass of the windows of this and others of my lord's castles and houses here in this country do decay and waste. Clarkson recommends that whenever the earl was away from the castle, the windows were taken down and laid up in safety. And replaced whenever he came back. By the middle of the 1600s, things had changed again. England and Scotland now had the same monarch, and Annick Castle's military usefulness as a border fortress had decreased. But in 1650, thousands of Scottish prisoners were held inside the castle walls. Following the Battle of Dunbar in southeast Scotland in September of that year, the prisoners were marched south towards Durham Cathedral, where they would be held. On the way, according to Annick Castle's administrator from the time, they were lodged within these walls one night betwixt the middle and upper gate. This must have been one of the outdoor areas of the castle grounds, what we call today the outer and inner baileys, as there were probably at least 3,000 prisoners, and there just wouldn't have been space in the dungeon or anywhere indoors. By the beginning of the 1700s, the prisoners were long gone, and the castle was no longer required for keeping them or to defend the border of the now united England and Scotland. The Percy family no longer used Annick Castle either. The condition of the castle buildings and walls began to deteriorate, until 1750, when Hugh and Elizabeth Percy, later known as the first Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, decided to create a northern seat of the family at Annick and restore the buildings, grounds, and the wider parkland that surrounded the castle. The style of the castle was completely changed by this restoration into something much more gothic. Looking at illustrations that were made of the castle around this time, there's something almost like a fairy tale about it. Tall turrets, beautiful windows, and on top of the walls and towers, dozens of stone statues which were added for decoration. You can still see some of these statues today, but 200 years ago, there would have been many more. A lot were taken down in the 1850s and 1860s, when Annick Castle was restored again by the fourth Duke of Northumberland. New towers were built, and courtyards were modernised, and new staterooms were created inside the keep in the style of an Italian palace, so that the castle looked like a medieval fortress outside, but inside it became something very different. The castle today is similar to the way it would have been in the mid-19th century after this restoration. The towers, the walls and the courtyards are still as they were, and the staterooms still have the Renaissance Italian style the fourth duke wanted for them, full of amazing items and collections. These are the rooms you see if you visit Annick Castle today, and we will be exploring them in more detail in future episodes of the podcast. During the 20th century, 
Annick Castle was used in both the First and Second World Wars. A military training camp was created in 1914 on the land north of the castle known as the Pastures, while students from Newcastle Church High School were evacuated to the castle between 1940 and 1944. After the end of the Second World War, Annick Castle opened as a visitor attraction. The first tourists arrived in the summer of 1950, and a few years later, the castle grounds began to be used for filming. The castle still has both of those functions today. Even if you've never visited as a tourist, you've probably seen at least one film or TV programme that features Annick Castle. It's still lived in today as well, and is known as the home of the current generation of the Percy family, the 12th Duke and Duchess of Northumberland. So that brings us up to date, and if I had to summarise, the easiest way to put it is probably to say Annick Castle definitely goes back to the 12th century. It was made into a strong defensive fortress by the 14th century, it was restored in the 18th century, restored again in the 19th century, and it's still here in the 21st century. So, that is a very quick summary of what's happened at Annick Castle over most of its history. There's a lot to explore, and there are a lot of stories to tell, and we will be getting into plenty of those as this podcast continues. If there's anything I've mentioned in this episode that you'd like to hear more about, please get in touch and let us know. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Annick Castle, or by emailing podcast at annickcastle.com. On the next episode, I'll be doing another history lesson for you. This time, we'll be looking at the history of the Percy family, the people who've owned and lived in Annick Castle for the last 700 years. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review or give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please recommend us to your friends. Until then, thank you very much to Jenny for joining us. I've been Daniel, and thank you very much for listening to the first episode of the Annick Castle podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.